Hey, this is Brandon Lucido, owner of the Lucido Real Estate Team. On our podcast, we talk about life events, real estate, and how to help and serve people. Catch our podcast every week for a new episode. You can find more information on us at thelucidoteam.com. On behalf of my team, thanks for tuning in. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Hey there, Brandon. Today we've got Wilson and myself, and Bobby is, uh, unfortunately, he is uh, out sick. Yep, so. Too like, much turkey. I know. Yep, that, that'll do it. <laughs> so we will be, uh, without any reservation, gladly talking about him while he's not here. That's right. That's so. right. All bets are off. That's right. Just like betting on the Cowboys to win. You never know. Oh, man. Don't bring that up. I know. Okay, so today we're going to talk the majority about contracts. And specifically, um, the majority of this will be about the Texas Real Estate Commission contract, the TREC contract, which is what most real estate agents use for the uh, pre-owned market. And then we will kind of finish up with the new build side and what those contracts somewhat represent. Good. So um, let's do it this way because there's a lot to get through. Um, we'll just go page by page. Sounds good. Alternate that way since uh, we can get different views and stories on each one. Okay. So the, the your typical experience with Trek contracts, you will usually have the one to four residential contract resale, which is what the official contract name is. And it's about... Uh, 11, 14 pages, something like that. Now it's yeah, 11, 11. Okay. And then attached to that, you will have a thing called addendums. So those are just things attached to the contract. So for example, if you have a loan, you will also attach a third party financing addendum to that contract. And that represents you having to get a loan in order to pursue the subject property. And then also if you have to sell your current home, in order to buy a new one, then you will have an addendum for sale of other property by the buyer. And that has its own terms. And all those addendums are applicable to the contract and are referenced towards the end of the actual contract itself under the addendum list. Okay? And I would say the majority of all the addendums, for that matter, are contingencies. Meaning that if the addendum doesn't happen the way it's supposed to, you can back out. Subject to terms and conditions. Now, again, there's other addendums that are just disclosure addendums. And we'll get into some of those uh, as well. So, okay. So, first page on the Trek residential contract is the parties section. Um, number one, that's pretty standard. It just represents who the seller and buyers are to the property. Now, um, if you pursue a property under the event, uh, under the intention to uh, change the name afterwards, it's always recommended that uh, you put and or signs to the end of the name of the purchaser. So that in the event that you want to change it, you have the ability to do it. Okay. And again, sidebar, any sort of legal questions you have, feel free to reach out to an attorney for more explanations on these contracts. These are all promulgated by the state. 
um, kind of more of a template plug and play. But again, if you want more clarity, uh, legal counsel would be the best option uh, for more advice. Okay, and then you have the seller spot, which is self-explanatory. It's who owns the property. And a lot of times it'll be in the individual's names, but if you are, again, purchasing, let's say, a business um, or some sort of, uh, you know, a, a rental property that they've got majority of, you know, I mean, most of one, two, three, or four multiple properties, they will not be in their personal name. They will usually be in an LLC, so that will be referenced under the seller name. Brandon, what have you seen when the seller is a deceased individual? Most of the times I see it in a trust. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Or you can use that or assigns as well on that because it might be a family member. There may not be a trust set up. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It also depends on how far in the process from the deceased. Sure. You know, because if it just happened, then, you know, you have to work through the litigation of that. All right. So great. Good question. Um, number two, property. This basically states the information about the property that's being identified that you're purchasing. So usually this is referenced in the tax rolls section uh, within your uh, county. It will show the lot and block number, uh, the legal description, the uh, city it's located in, and the actual address of the property. Now it's important that this is properly represented because this is what the contract uses to identify the actual property itself that you're buying especially when you're buying land. You want to make sure that you're actually getting what you're, uh, <laughs> what you're, what you're purchasing. Um, next is improvements. Um, those are improvements that are personally uh, installed uh, into the property um, that they will retain uh, with the property as well. Um, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves with, with exclusions, but Nonetheless, B and C kind of are subcategories to section D, which are exclusions. Okay, so anything that is um, fixated to the property. So, for example, if you have a chandelier that is an heirloom, but it's obviously stuck to the ceiling hanging in the dining room, and your plans are to take that with you once you sell the property, you need to list that in the exclusions. So it's excluded from the property. Now, Wilson, softball question, but we get it a lot. If the washer and dryer is in the house and it's just freestanding, do we have to list that as an exclusion? No, we don't because those aren't permanently installed. Those are appliances that are plugged in. And um, however, the seller can offer those in the sale of the property or can offer them for sale with the sale of the property. And that's handled in another amendment. Correct. Yep. And we get that a lot. So we do best advice is if there's anything that you're going to take, let the agent know up front in the very beginning before you execute that contract. Does a stove have to be excluded? Um, if it's freestanding, obviously no. Right. But if it's uh, fixated to the property, uh, it assume it's retains with the yep. property, but if you're going to, again, if it's, it's stuck to the physical granite countertop, yes, it needs to be excluded if you're going to take it. So if it's plug and play, something that you just simply plug or unplug, it, you can assume that it's not going to transfer with the property. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. 
Okay. Uh, sales price. Uh, Wilson, why don't you take that one? Sales price. So the first line in the sales price section is the cash portion of sales. Uh, there are different loans out there. Uh, veterans loans um, can be had for as little as 1% down of the sales price. And so you would take the ultimate or bottom line offer price, then multiply that by 1%, and a veteran would put that 1% value in there. FHA loans can be 3.5%. A conventional loan can be anywhere between 5 to 20% down, or you can even put more than 20% down there for cash. But uh, typically that's what goes in the first line is cash. The second line is the third-party addendum. This is how much you have to finance. It's... Um, the 80% that's remaining after 20% down or the 99% remaining after a veteran puts 1% down. And then line C is just the summation of those two lines. And uh, that is your ultimate offer price. Correct. Yes. Um, Okay. So section four leases. So in here, um, so again, and side note, these contracts, they change. Sometimes one time a year. Something I think this year it's been two or three times. Right. Um, so as new problems come about in the state or new um, developments happen, they add or take away or both to these existing contracts. So they are always changing. So uh, a new section to this is uh, section four in the leases, and I'll read it to you. And it says, except as disclosed in the contract, seller is not aware of any leases affecting the property. After the effective date, which just so you know, the effective date is when both parties, the last party signs and executes. They put a date there. So after the effective date, the seller may not, without buyer's written consent, create a new lease, amend any existing lease, or convey any interest in the property. Okay. And the reason why this came about is when VRBO and uh, Airbnb came on the scene. I mean, they've been out there for a while, but it, it really went hot and heavy in the last three years running. People were selling their homes, and when a buyer put it under contract, the seller, you know, the creative juices started flowing, and they said, hey, I can make some money, even though I'm waiting on this thing to close. It takes 30 days on average to close during this process. So a buyer who'd put a house under contract, the seller would go Airbnb it while it's under contract and just lease it out to random people. Wow. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, the buyer walks through the house the day before closing (laughs) and it's no longer in the same condition. Mm -hmm. So they're like, yeah, you can't do that. Um, And so that's why this clause came into effect. So if you do that, um, it, has a bunch of little subcategories for you to reference on the condition of the actual property and the leases if there's any in existence. Okay, so if you're a seller and you got a house for sale and it's under contract, don't go doing that. All right, earnest money and termination option money. Well, so why don't you take this one? So all our sales close at title companies, and this is a place where um, the address of the title company is referenced, but also the amounts that the title company will hold for the buyer. Um, in order to get a time period, typically five to seven days, that we call the option period, that cost, we charge uh, the buyer about $100 for that. Um, 
here in the current market. Um, I've been uh, asked to do $250 quite often, and uh, my buyers usually uh, agree to that. That's not a problem. But earnest money, typically we put down, or the buyer puts down 1% of the total offer price. So 1%. So what they're doing, uh, what's changed this year is the option money and earnest money are combined in one financial transaction, either a check or a wire. Um, so that would be the $100 plus the 1% down added together, uh, written on a check, uh, made payable to the title company or a wire to the title company. And each title company has different wiring instructions. So both of those amounts are um, are lined out here. Um, 1% is earnest money and 100 or $250 as the option money. And so that goes here. And then the name of the title company plus the address where we're going to close. Okay, so, so back up for a second. On the termination of option, the option fee money, so if I'm a buyer and I put a house under contract and I write the checks, the earnest and the option money or the single check, but the total amounts, and I have my five-day due diligence period, and I say, you know what, this house is has a lot of problems. It's not what I thought. I want to back out. Which money stays and which money do I get back? You actually get both of those op, uh, both of those back, both the option money and the earnest money back. And I also failed to say before that you have three days after you have the fully executed contract to get those funds to the title company. So you can't just wait a week and look around at some other houses. You've got three days to, to move and get that get those funds in. But yeah, you get both of those if you decide to terminate and the seller gets the, a copy of the contract, a copy of the addendum that you say, I want to terminate. They have to get that back uh, within your option number of days. Right. But the kicker is, is if you decide to back out during the option period, the seller keeps the option money and the buyer gets his earnest money That's back. Right. That's right. So you got to be careful that when you're putting this, you know, this money into the, uh, the title company, you're aware of, you know, how much is at risk. And again, the reason the amount is, is so small is because, you know, you, you need to see the condition of the property. That's when you do your inspection of the property or you get, you know, a foundation company or whatever the condition is, you get the appropriate contractors out there. And if it doesn't suffice and you can't come to terms with negotiating on the repairs, um, you know, there's a little bit of compensation for the sellers. Now, if you decide to not back out during the option period and you decide to move forward and let's say your option period is day seven, on day eight, your earnest money goes firm and you can't get that money back because of repairs and so forth. You can get the money back after the eight days if it is exercised through one of the addendums. Right. Okay. And we'll get into that in a second. So once you're past that option period, you better have a pretty strong grip that this is the house you want to move forward on. That's right. Okay. Okay. Um, next section is title policy and survey. Um, when you have a pre-owned home, the majority of the times the sellers will pay for the title policy. That's kind of standard. Now, do the buyers sometimes try to sweeten a deal and say they'll pay for that policy? Sure. Yes. 
But statistically, the, major, the majority of the time, the sellers pay for that. That's not the case, though, if we're contrasting it with a new build. I haven't seen a new build contract in a long time where it says that the builders will be paying for the title policy. So do be aware if you go pursue a new build, it's very common to have them have you pay for the title policy. Also, on average, your closing costs will be higher than it will be on a pre-owned home. Okay, two things to notate. Set aside from other contract terms, which we'll get into, but those are the two big differences from pre-owned and new construction when it comes to the title policy. Okay, a survey. Typically, in this uh, pre-owned market, if a seller has a survey, they will give it to you, and they will uh, submit it over to title. And if title does not accept the survey, with or without a T-47, then the buyer has to pay for a new one. That's usually how the transaction goes. And a T-47 is a, a like an... Uh is a form, it's an affidavit, an affidavit that this survey is true and correct. Right. So if you have an old survey, um, I want to say, I'll have to double check. I want to say if it's three years or older, um, the sellers don't have to go buy a new one. They can just get a T47 affidavit signed and notarized saying, hey, this old survey, even though it's old, it still looks the same as it was when I first got it surveyed. So instead of me paying all this money for a new one, I'm just going to sign this and say it hasn't changed. So if you've had a pool installed or a, a some sort of storage facility put on the property, do you have to have a new survey? If there's a fixture on the property, I mean fixture, structure on the property, yes. Yep, even a pool. Correct. It's got to be referenced in the new survey. Now, if you have a pool and you submit over a... Uh, the old survey, and you sign your T forty seven. That's not valid, mm-hmm. okay? Because that's not you're not being honest, right? Okay, it doesn't properly reflect the current condition of the property. It's obvious that it changed, correct? So, but if it hasn't, as far as the monetary structure of this goes, if it hasn't, then the buyers will pay for a new one as long as the sellers submit over what they have. Now, if the sellers don't have one at all. Usually, we'll just say in the contract, hey, you've already told us up front, you don't have a survey, you're going to buy a new one. Now, again, these are all negotiable items, but that's typically the experience we see. With the new build, you're buying the new survey, whether they have one or not. Every time. Every time. Okay. um, Next thing we'll get into is... Objections. This is an important section. Um, you want to take this one, Wilson? You want me to go through it? Okay. Uh, why don't you take this one? Okay. So this is an area, Section D, uh, where the buyer may object in writing to defects, exceptions, or encumbrances to title that are disclosed on the survey other than the items you know, listed above um, in the title policy. And you can also be an objection to the prohibited use or activity of the property. 
And if you object, you have to notify um, earlier than the closing date or certain amount of days after you receive that commitment and the exception documents. And let me give you an example. Um, let's say you purchase a property and your use is to want to be able to build a barn in your backyard. Okay, so you buy a house, it's on an acre, and the whole intent of you buying this house with an acre so that you could build a barn in the back so you could, you know, have a wood shop or whatever your desires, but that's your intent. Well, you're not going to know that. You're not going to know if you can or you cannot until later on down the process of this journey of being under contract. So what you have to do is you have to put the offer in and get it agreed upon, work through negotiations, okay? And by that time, you're already past the option period. So your earnest money's already gone firm. And then later on, you're going to get the, the title policy and you're going to get the exception documents. And in there, if it says, hey, you know what? You, you can't do that. You can't build a barn. You can't actually build any structure in the rear of the property. Well, that's why we wanted to pursue this in the very beginnings because I wanted to do that. But now that I can't, you know, I want to back out. Well, you're able to do that under Section D of Objections. Here's the kicker, though. You need to make sure that you're aware of what that objection is or specifically if there's an activity or a use, you need to identify it in the contract. Okay? So if there's something specific to why you're wanting to pursue this property and everything hinges on that, your agent needs to identify that in Section D. So that way the sellers are aware and there's no complications with you backing out. And can you get your earnest money back if you if those objections are met? Correct. As long as you, per the terms of the, object, of, of the objection section, notify them within X amount of days. Great. Okay. And the sellers agree to that because it's stated right here, hey, here's the reasons why I want to buy the property. And if I can't get, you know, A, B, C, D done, I'm going to put that as my objections, right? But if I can't get those things done, I'm out. And I have so many days to notify you about those things. And it's the title company telling you what you can use the property for. Correct. When they pull title and give you all your policies and your uh, exception documents and your commitment, that's when you will learn about what you can and cannot do. Great. Okay. Um, so next thing is uh, property condition. So this specifically goes through the seller's disclosure notice. Um, Wilson, why don't you kind of shed some light on that. Sure. A seller's disclosure notice is a form that the seller of the property honestly, we hope, fills out and attests to its honesty. For example, uh, there's a line in the seller's disclosure notice, What um, is, is there any kind of um, a hazard on the property or is there any kind of um, anything that's gone wrong with the property, such as a flood, such as um, a roof failure or anything like that? And the seller has to put in the age of the roof, what it's made of, and also uh, tons of check boxes that um, that list this house has gas or not. This house has one HVAC or two or three. This house has um, is in a flood zone, et cetera, et cetera. And so, 
that's very important to go through when deciding, hey, do I want to put an offer on this property? Am I willing to go through and make the changes that I think need to be done? Or am I going to ask the seller to make these changes? And normally if it's a safety feature, the seller will change it, will we'll make, uh, make it right. If it's something like, oh, I don't like the color on the walls, um, I'd like new windows, that's not a safety issue and that's not going to be, be changed during, um, during the period before you uh, close on the house. So um, if you haven't received the notice, the seller has to fill it out. Um, the line number two on here says we've got to have the seller's disclosures within a, an X number of days, uh, usually three to five. And um, there are cases where a seller does not need to provide a seller's disclosure notice. And that case is if the house is being sold as is. So if it looks like a property that's going to be sold and just push down, knock down, and then a new structure be con- uh, constructed there, then there's no need to have a seller's disclosure notice because no one's going to inhabit that former house. So um, go back a second for the the time of days after the effective date of the contract, right? Mm-hmm. For the buyer to receive this document. So if my option period right, where I do my due diligence, let's pretend it's seven days. Do I want to receive the seller's disclosure notice within that seven days or afterwards? Uh, you really want to see, uh, receive it within those seven days. Right, because if there's something that's problematic in there, I want to be able to back out during my option period. That's right. Right, and as far as when the, buyers receive this document a lot of times the listing agent will already have the seller filled out and it'll already be on mls Mm -hmm. so by the time we even put the offer in we'll already have that document we're not waiting on it but again sometimes it's not on there and we execute a contract but we don't have the seller's disclosure notice yet so we have to put in there a buyer has not received the notice so within blank amount of days after the effective uh date of this contract you will give it to us so um, but very important because it does give a history report of the condition of the property because we have no idea who lived there what the condition is the whole story behind it so we lean very heavy on that document to shed some light on what type of home we're buying and the seller doesn't always know the history of the property a lot of times an investor will buy the property and the um, seller can put on their NA or unknown. For example, foundation issues. Well, if they haven't had a foundation company out to look at the property and, and do a test, they don't have any idea about the prior owner and what, what he knew. So there is a possibility that, that, that there's an unknown checkbox on that seller's disclosure notice. Right. So when the sellers ch- check yes, no, or unknown, if they're going to select yes or no, they better have a definitive understanding of that and they take a stance, right? If there's a toss-up, if there's a question of, I'm not quite sure, don't say no because you don't 100% know and don't say yes because you don't 100% know. If, you, right. if, if there's a question about it, your safest bet is to put unknown. That's right. Okay. Um, section D talks about acceptance of property condition as is. So is this where we uh, 
put the repairs and what we want fixed to the home in this section? Um, or do we, you know, do we do that during the option period in our inspection? Yeah, we do that during the option period. Um, you know, we take the home as is. We're not going to expect a buyer's not going to expect the seller to do some major renovation or move a wall here or there. We're buying the property as it is, not um, asking at this point the seller to put up a fence, to you know, dig a swimming pool, whatever. That's not uh, done at this at this section. Correct. Now, I have seen before where some sellers will say, hey, um, I'm selling this property and, you know, I have a pergola in the backyard and I'm going to be fixing the roof of it because it's falling apart. And the sellers state that in the property description online. The listing agent tells me, hey, I'm just going to let you know you know, my clients are already planning on fixing this as part of the deal, okay? Then we can go ahead and list that mm-hmm. right there under Section 2 where it says, buyer accepts the property as is, provided the seller, at seller's expense, shall complete the following specific repairs and treatments. Yeah, it's important to hold them to it and not just a handshake deal. Oh, correct. Anything verbal or just... Uh, even even emails, there's nothing binding there. It's all hearsay. So if it's not on the contract, it doesn't matter. Um, lender required repairs and treatments, okay? Um, that a lot of times goes in to the type of loan. Uh-huh. Um, Wilson, why don't you shed some light on what type of loan may or may not require some repairs, even if the buyers and sellers don't care about them? Obviously, a cash only, uh, which isn't a loan, but a cash only offer uh, would not require. No one's there to require any kind of repairs or, or treatments. An FHA loan, where you put approximately three and a half percent down, they their level of inspection and appraisal is so much more stringent than a conventional twenty percent down loan. Um, there, for example, there's one part where a door has to have six sides painted. Yeah, that's front and back, top, bottom, and both sides. Well, normally no one ever sees the bottom of a door or the top of a door, but they are that picky in order to um, have that government-backed FHA loan. Yeah, and the reason is because those types of loans, uh, the risk involved from the lender. You know, they're taking, they have a lot of skin in the game. So they're going to do everything they can to try to ensure that when they loan all this money, that they're they're trying to reduce their risk as much as possible. Yeah, they want the collateral to be in as best condition as can be. Correct. Okay. Um, broker and sales agents, section eight. Um, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, it's more it's more for us than anybody else. But if we are um, we own 10% or more of the asset or if we're involved in trust um, or related to the seller, uh, I've got to put in there and disclose that on this contract. What are some dangers that can come about by that, Brandon? 
Um, well, like, why does the buyer need to know? Hey, I'm a so and so is a real estate agent selling his own personal house. First off, it gives transparency, uh, and it helps them understand the nature of the deal because a real estate agent is going to be pretty savvy selling his house. Correct. And so sometimes people might, um, pursue a property. Let's just say with an attorney, or let's just say they don't have representation and I'm listing my own home. They need to be aware that I'm a licensed agent. And obviously I have way more working knowledge of these contracts than just the average consumer. Um, I do it for a living. Sure. But they need to be aware of, of that skill set. But if you're represented, if you're a buyer that's represented, you should be okay because you have a professional Correct. watching out for you. Correct. Okay, closing. Uh, Wilson, you want to take this one? Closing. So different types of loans take different times. Obviously, a cash loan is going to be the shortest option. Um, title companies I've seen with cash offer uh, close in as few as two weeks, um, maybe closer to three. A conventional loan um, nowadays is getting, I mean, it varies with lenders. It can be three weeks to four weeks to four and a half weeks. So we put a closing date on there um, about a month out. And this line uh, in Section 9 allows us to close within seven days, even earlier than that. Um and we don't have to amend it. If we're not going to make the closing date for, for one reason or another, either because repairs haven't been done or the loan hasn't been fully approved, then we'll have to type up an amendment and extend it out another ever how long the, the party thinks we need to extend it out. So closing dates are uh, always a celebration, and um, you know we want, we want to hit them and uh, as close as possible, and so we put that date in here. Correct. And again, you can close on or before that day. Yep. So something to keep in mind. Just can't just can't close after. And sellers want a short window. Um, and if you're trying to sell a house, you know, tell to sell a house to buy this particular house, uh, you know, you, you probably need to to be aware that it's uh, to be contingent that it's going to take some time to sell your house, and that um, it's awfully. Uh, Awfully dangerous to put any any sooner than thirty days. Sure. Okay, possession. This is an important one. In fact, when I first got into real estate, they drilled this into our heads about when a buyer can actually possess and occupy their new home. For example, if you're in the title company and you're signing your documents, your closing disclosures. As soon as you sign the last line, can the buyer just leave right then and there, go move into the property and occupy it? No, unfortunately not. Correct. Um, reason is, is technically it's not theirs yet. So in order for a property to change ownership, besides signing the closing documents, the title company has to also balance, fund, and disperse the money. In simple terms, the seller needs to get their money. Yeah, those wires take time. It's not instantaneous. It takes a couple hours. Correct. And usually the keys cannot be released to the buyers until that has happened. Right. 
And the reason, again, this section exists is because back in the day, there's multiple stories out there, but I'll just give you one that I remember. Someone had signed the closing documents. It had not, the money had not been wired, dispersed, and funded yet. The buyers had the keys. They moved into their new home, or I think they just went across the street because it was pretty close to the title company, and they went into the new home. The sellers had already moved out, and the buyer went up the stairs and fell down and broke his leg. Mm. And he ended up suing the, the seller, who at the time of the accident still owned the property. Yeah, technically, sure. Correct. And so... It's it's more to protect the seller than it is the buyer. Don't release those keys until all the funds hit. Right. Okay, here's a new section. Wilson, why don't you read this? On under possession. So it talks about uh oh, real quick before I got ahead of myself. So under possession, there's another subcategory called um it, it, it's in relation to an addendum, and that's a lease back. So let's say you close on a property, the buyer does, and the sellers are like, hey, I can't move out for another two weeks after closing. We can close on it, the money can get dispersed, but you can't move in because I need two more weeks after that date for us to move out. So that's reflected in the very beginning before any of this starts. When we first sign that contract, that's reflected in an addendum referencing a lease back. Okay? So if that's the case and there's a lease back in existence on the contract when it talks about possession, we can either select the box where it says upon closing and funding is when we can take possession or according to a temporary residential lease back meaning that once the lease back is up, then the buyers can move in. So to be clear, ownership is transferred to the buyer, but possession, they can't go in the house until the seller agrees, or the, until they have agreed upon when the seller will leave, right? Correct. When you close and the money is dispersed and funded, the new buyers own the property, mm-hmm. but they cannot possess it, aka move in, you know do life and live in it. Yeah, start moving their stuff. Correct, until the lease back is up. So, yep. very important. Yep, that's, that is important. The uh, next part of this is, uh, you know, with houses getting more and more smart, we've got a line that says that the smart devices that connect to the internet or anything like that, that the seller has to either give the buyer the information on how to access, like codes. Like, for example, the... Um, they may have an alarm, and if the seller doesn't want to turn it off or cease all um, operations, then they have to give the buyer the access code and let the buyer uh, change that. But uh, smart devices are part of uh, you know newer houses now, and um, you can't just uh, leave it to where the seller can get back in the house alarm-free and have the buyer... Uh, locked out for any reason. Uh, smart locks, you know, the quick locks on the doors too. you got to let the buyer know, hey, here's the code to get in. You can change it later. Correct. 
Yep. Gotta let everyone know the code so they can get, you know, their new their their new house up and running. Yep. Okay, special provisions. Um man, this was a uh this is a very uh touchy uh paragraph, but nonetheless, um special provisions is a to some degree a sandbox where we can add uh phrases in this that uh modify or add new terms to the existing contract. Um, There's a disclaimer. It says, insert only factual statements and business details applicable to the sale. Trek rules prohibit license holders, a.k.a. real estate agents, from adding factual statements or business details for which a contract addendum, lease, or other form has been promulgated by Trek for mandatory use. So, all that jargon means we can add factual statements and business details applicable to the sale, and that's about it. Anything else that wants to get facilitated in here needs to be done by an attorney. Yeah, we're not attorneys. Uh, one thing I like to put in here, Brandon, is an expiration date of my offer or of my, my buyer's offer, uh, just smart. so it's not hanging out there all the time. Um, I also use it to kind of put pressure on the seller to accept my uh, offer before an open house, you know, if it's really a, a grand slam offer. But this is a place where I put that statement, this offer expires and becomes null and void on at X time on X date. But that's not legalese. That's just a part of the deal. Correct. And that's a good tactic. It gets us a response. It prevents us from being drug out and you know, it forces the seller to make a choice or roll the dice and wait for something better to come down. That's right. So, yeah, and I'm I'm reading just a, an old one we've got here. And some person had put home to be professionally cleaned and have all standing receipts furnished to the buyer 24 hours prior to closing. That's nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, settlement statement and other expenses. Okay, we don't really use this very much um, unless there, again, there's a VA or FHA loan involved. Then, you know, we'll have some maybe monetary compensation applied to that loan in the event that we've got that type of financing. And let me just say, Brandon, some of these, you know, this contract allows for numbers to be input or things to be written in. If something doesn't apply, I'm going to put NA in there to protect my buyer. I'm not going to leave anything empty. I'm not saying anyone else is dishonest, but just in case, I want everyone to know that we have read through this whole contract and either decided to put something in that field or not. And an NA uh, often is um, satisfies that requirement that we did look at it. Very good. Yes, <laughs> that's. Uh, I'm all about protecting on both sides. Um, okay, so. Section 15, go ahead and fast forward to there, is default. Um, very important, okay? I think everybody needs to read this section, yep. even the sellers. Uh, I'll read it to you. If buyer fails to comply with this contract, buyer will be in default, and seller may enforce specific performance. We'll get to what that means in a second. Seek such other relief as may be provided by law or both or terminate this contract and receive the earnest money as liquidated damages 
thereby in default and buyer may enforce specific performance. I'm sorry, if seller fails to comply with this contract, seller will be in default and buyer may enforce specific performance. Seek seek other relief as may uh, be provided by law and terminate the contract and receive the earnest money, thereby releasing both parties from the contract. So I like this because it keeps both parties accountable. Basically, if the seller doesn't do what they say, buyers are getting their earnest money back and, you know, you can be, they can seek specific performance against you. And if the buyers don't do what they say, the sellers can keep your earnest money and they can come after you for specific performance. Yeah. Like you said earlier, Brandon, once you get past that five to seven day option period, you better make sure this is the property you want. Correct. Or if you have addendums to cover you. Yep. Yes. Um, but that's why I love these trek contracts because they're balanced. It keeps everyone accountable. You know, I made an agreement to do this for you. I expect you to hold up your end of the bargain, vice versa. Yep. Um, okay, prorations. Back up for a sec. Prorations. Um, so taxes for the current year, interest, maintenance fees, assessments, dues, rents, those will all be prorated through the closing date. So the tax proration may be calculated taking into consideration any change in exemptions um, that will affect the current year's taxes. If the taxes for the current year vary from the amount prorated at closing, the parties will adjust the prorations when tax statements for the current year are available. If taxes are not paid at or prior to closing, buyers shall pay taxes for the current year. So the reason for this is because taxes are paid, HOA fees as well, are paid in advance. Generally, if you're uh, taking that out of your mortgage, the mortgage company will pay these taxes and insurance in October or November for the following year. So if you buy the house that following year, the taxes, insurance, everything's already been paid. So the seller gets that amount back. Correct. It's already been paid for by the buyer. Then the following year, the buyer can expect to pay those on his own. Correct. Okay. Um, Skip to notices. Um, This is an important section as well. This is where it identifies in the contract what parties are involved and the roadmap of how to communicate. Uh So it stipulates the buyer's names. I always put the agent's names as well the email addresses, phone numbers of each side. So if I need to communicate or if time is of the essence, I can properly deliver that information through the right channels. And our team has a transaction coordinator that I include her contact information on here as well. Because if I'm out and about, if and somebody needs to get a hold of somebody, they can get a hold of her at any time. Yes, the more people that can be involved, the better. Okay, in section 22 is agreement of parties, and this is the uh, uh, addenda section, which lists every, well, for the most part, every addendum that could be exercised in the contract. So third-party financing addendum, um, addendum of property subject to mandatory membership in a property homeowners association, just big words for, there's an HOA, um, a leaseback, um, 
if there is a property someone has to sell in order to buy this one. Um, this is a contingency to sell uh, of another property addendum. Um, we reference those in this section. So when someone gets this contract, this is why it's really important to see those boxes. They can go to section 22 and say, hey, is there anything else there? Is there anything else out there that's part of this deal? And they go to section 22 and they're like, oh man, there's five addendums. Where are those things at? Let's go find them. So that's how you reference that there's other documents privy to this deal. So it's not just the contract itself. Okay. Um, And let's talk about a couple of those addendums. So third-party financing addendum, probably the most common one we're going to use the most. You want to shed some light on that one, Wilson? Of course. Um, So the very first section, it shows what type of financing is being done. Uh, I mentioned earlier about conventional financing. That's generally when you put between 5 and 20% down or anything more than that. Um, so it references the amount of your loan. So remember, if it's 20% down, you're loaning on 80% of your offer price, and that's, that's listed right there. Also in there is a section on how many years you will uh, be paying that loan. Uh, 15 year is, is pretty aggressive. So for the most part, 30 year loans are the most common right now. Also, there's a percentage that shows your interest rate. Um, if you've gotten your pre-approval letter from your lender, it'll show that interest rate on there. And so that should be noted on here as well. Uh, the next line is a veteran's loan. Shows the amount is how much is, is um, financed and for how long and what the interest rate is, etc. FHA, same thing. USDA, same thing. It shows, it asks for the interest rate, how much you're financing, and what the year um, duration is that you're paying for it. Section two, um, every contract is usually subject to the buyer obtaining approval. If you... Unless you're a, a new build. Correct. Or if you're a, you know, obviously a cash owner, but yeah, um, it's good to have a conversation with your lender or with the lender and to find out, Hey, how long can, will it take for you to get this loan underwritten? And we will put that in this section as well. That yes, we have to get buyer approval and yes, it will take this long. Obviously sellers want this day, this window to be as short as possible, but the, lender just has to be honest and say this is how long it's going to take if you can't get it done we get on our hands and knees and beg for an extension to get it done yeah and so you have buyer approval and you have property approval different things those are the two i had mentioned this in our last our last podcast but here's a prime example that not only does the buyer have to be approved but the property needs to be approved too in order for this entire financing addendum to suffice. Sure. And this is to protect everybody. The appraisal is an important part of this deal. So again, that's one of the most common addendums that we're going to have is the third-party financing addendum. And then to, uh, to end the contract, last page is the executed date page. So it's just a page that literally has a black box where you put in a date and both parties sign it. 
But the buyer signs first. This is the buyer's offer to purchase the property. The seller either accepts it, declines it, or counters it. Not until you both come to an agreement is that executed box filled in with a date. Right, and the last party to sign is the one that executes it. Right. Correct, because you could have four or five negotiations back and forth. So, third-party financing addendum, and then we're going to end with the addendum uh, for sale of another property from the buyer, okay? That's really important. So, obviously, it's very common in today's times for people to have a home to sell before they buy a new one, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Like most people, they're like, hey, uh, I can't buy this new home unless I sell, you know, my current one, which is fine, but they need to make it contingent upon that. So we attach an addendum for sale of other property by the buyer. And the important structure of this addendum to notate is we put the address of the property and we basically say, hey, the buyer has to receive the proceeds from the sale of their old home on or before this date. So let's play this out. Let's say we put an offer in with a contingency sell to buy. Today's date is the 29th of November. So let's say we're going to, you know, uh, close January of one of next year. Okay. I'm going to try my best to put on this addendum. That, hey, if we're closing on the new property on the 1st of January, I want to have up till then to close on their old home. That way we can do it both at the same day and both proceeds can get transferred and there's no lapse in time. And the sellers may agree to that because they get that part. But where I'm going to get pushback is the next section where section B says, if the seller accepts a written offer to sell the property, right? So if the seller gets another offer, like let's say they've agreed to ours and to our contingency to sell to buy, right? Right. But if they get another offer during that time, they have to put us on notice and they give us a certain amount of days for us to lift or remove this contingency, right? So let's say, and, and so in here, I try to ask for the moon. I'm like, hey, I want, I want 21 days, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. They're going to be like, I want one day. Right. But it's it lands somewhere in between five or 10 days. And so they're going to say, hey, you know, I got an offer. It's the middle of December. I know we're not closed until January 1, but, you know, it's December 15th. And um, according to our addendum, you've got five days to remove this contingency or we're taking this other deal. And I go back to my buyers and say, I mean, to my, to my buyers and say, Hey, we're going to have to remove it. You know, do you want to run the risk of that? Um, you know, that depends on how secure their deal is on their, you know, old home or they'll say, yeah, I feel confident with it. I'm fine. Let's, you know, let's go ahead. So, um, it's very important. Sure. Yeah. There's a risk to the seller too. I mean, he's got a contract, an executed contract that's moving and, um, if another one comes in, it, it better be rock solid. Or if it's not, then, you know, you hate to have a go back on the market. Sure. And you can't just remove the contingency. No. If you do that, you've got to put down a certain amount of money in addition to the earnest money. Oh, sure. That counts as additional earnest money as well. So those terms still apply to this additional deposit. 
And they do that because they want you to be more serious and have more skin in the game. Absolutely. So, um, lots to talk about in these contracts. And they're always changing, right? This is going to look different next year. Um, but this is the journey you will be going through uh, as you get under contract. And it's a lot of fun. We handle all this. You know, this is more the back-end operations of it. But for buyers and sellers, the main things to remember are your closing date, how long you have for your due diligence period or your option period, okay? When you uh, have your earnest money go hard or firm when you don't, and how long you have to get, you know, financially approved for the property. And if you're selling a property, how long do you have to, to get that thing sold and um, when your notices could be removed for the contingency? So, um, again, sounds kind of in-depth, but... It's pretty standard. Yeah. We want you to understand it. We want the buyers and sellers to understand these contracts, not get not to get bogged down in them, but we will explain. We'll hold their hand through the whole process and, and going through the contract and explain everything that we need to do. Sure. Well, all right. Well, that does it for the this episode, and uh, look forward to uh, next week. I hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Click on the subscribe link to catch our next episode. If you or anyone you know has any real estate needs, you can find more information on us at thelacidoteam.com. On behalf of my team, thanks for tuning in.